0: Hello and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live, a show where we go hunting for the most courageous culture warriors holding the line against the class of weak and disappointing politicians who hang around together sipping champagne on the nearest private jet. Today's guest is described by Big Tech as an historian, archaeologist and British television presenter but our audience will know him better as a national treasure with a great Scottish accent that he uses to monologue his way to the top of the nearest Twitter, Twitter trend list. He is, of course, the Coast Guy, Neil Oliver. Neil, welcome to the show.
1: Well, Alexandra, it's lovely to uh, be with you, uh, if only remotely. Um, I got to know Australia and Australians properly, uh, well, started about 10 years ago now. Uh, making Coast Australia. And I I fell completely in love with the place and with many of the people that I met. Uh, And when all of the present situation began to unfold and I saw what was happening uh, elsewhere, Australia included, you know, my heart went out to fellow travelers, wherever they were, uh, your friends that I had made and maintained during that Coast adventure. Uh, and so I, I appreciate any opportunity I get to speak as directly as possible uh, we, to, to your uh, side of the world.
0: You would have seen some of the uh, granite jails that we built when we first came to Australia, and it must have been strange to watch Australia to devolve back into basically a prison colony for two to three years. It was certainly disturbing to be living in one.
1: Yes, it was, it was undeniably... <sighs> Fascinating and compelling in an unhappy way uh, you know to see a, a place that had for for some time been you know, known as a sort of a, a, a prison island for, for many of its first uh, residents and, and then citizens but it was strangely disturbing to see that begin to happen again all you know centuries later uh, you know and you, you do wonder you do wonder about the destinies of places. It, it, you know, well, it happened in all a at sense. once. I mean, ha- you think, is there something in the DNA? But-
0: well, I hope not, because we were mostly free settlers. So it surprised the laid back Australian culture as much as anybody else, because some people don't know this. But we were settled, one of the only nations on earth, as a fresh start and a place of freedom and liberty. And I think we let the side down on that one.
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, my my experience of it was just, uh, was always and only a A place of vast potential, vast opportunity. I I come from, you know, landscapes that, while they're not exactly crowded, the population density that we've got in the UK is quite different from the population density that's there in Australia. And I was always just struck by the wide openness of it, literally and metaphorically. You know, I had the great good fortune to spend large chunks of time in places like the Kimberley, up in Arnhem Land, and You had stretches of West Australia where it was just big sky, big country, uh, where everything seemed and felt possible for, and I met all sorts of uh, characters, including eccentric characters, whose eccentricities and and free lifestyle was made possible by the vastness of the place, and the the very idea that, that that freedom and openness was being eroded by just a a a here-today, gone-tomorrow iteration of politicians was was distinctly disturbing.
0: Well, Neil, you were a seasoned commentator before embarking on your current path at GB News. But I'd like to know, was there a moment, a, a particular shift in politics or an event that pushed you over the edge from commentator into a passionate culture warrior?
1: It's a it's a good question that I, I keep asking myself. Uh, you know, my, and my wife and I we talk about it all the time, and that's a, a running strand because she and I, Trudy and I, were had always been, you know, uh, how would you describe it? I suppose just law abiding, heads down people getting on with our lives, and and operating. I now realise under the misapprehension that whatever government was out there, of whatever political stripe, was fundamentally uh, invested in the common good and and looking out for me and mine. And that, then that, that revelation that I've gone through in the last two or three years that has run counter to that assumption, you know, we, we ask ourselves, all of it, what, what, what happened to us? We say, you know, why, why did we decide not to take the vaccines, for example? Uh, you know, why did we, uh, you know, quietly refuse to follow the these regulations, the, the social distancing, the mask wearing and all the rest of it, because it ran counter to the sort of people we had always been for all of the previous part of our lives. So it's it's a question. It's an ongoing question. I think it, I think to begin with, I'm I'm always I've always been self-employed. Uh, and when the lockdown, when the first shutting down of the world happened, the the most immediate and instantaneous effect on me and us was we lost all our ability to <laughs> pay the bills. It was, we couldn't work. Everything that I had been doing, uh, theatre shows and all of it, all the things that I was making a living at were suddenly gone. And we looked at one another and thought, how long is this going to last? Because we can't, you know, you can hold your breath for only so long and then you've, you've got to start breathing again as weeks turned into months, I think, so that was the, I think that was the trigger to begin with. That was the, the, the splash of cold water to the face where we thought, what is this exactly? Because we had never been especially afraid of, of COVID-19. We, we just didn't take it as, as this great threat to life. Uh, and then once that happened, as they say, once you see it, you just can't unsee it. And once we decided that we were being uh, mistreated, uh, our trust violated, uh, we were being told things that didn't match up with the pictures. You know, if you get my meaning, we were watching events, but the way they were being described to us and the responses to them that were being offered up, they just didn't marry. And so there, 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 there grew this increasing dislocation for me, for us, but what we were being told and what we were seeing at the same time So I suppose there wasn't really a Damascene moment for me. There wasn't wasn't a single day where I thought, I understand an alternative interpretation of this reality. It was a gradual accretion of what seemed to us one quite obvious thing after another. Uh, And and also, once you you have that realisation, all I wanted to do to begin with was have the freedom to ask questions. I thought, well, I've got I've got some platforms. You know, I had a, I had I used to have a column in a in a national newspaper. which amongst the many things that I lost during the last two or three years, uh, I was a regular guest on a on a radio show he, on, here in the United Kingdom, and I was I was asking questions, and the way in which the response to my asking questions was so aggressive, from the top down, from the state from the establishment all the way down, I was just being told to be quiet. And when that started to happen, my antenna really began to twitch because I thought, why is it suddenly illegitimate to ask reasonable questions about such life-changing restrictions and regulations that are being imposed upon us? And once once you realize that rather than debate with you or engage with you as reasonable adults, We were being treated like children, you know, and unruly children. Some people said we were being treated like sheep. But whatever analogy works for you, we were being we were being told what to do and when we tried to ask why, we were just told to be quiet.
0: Well, and as to, soon
1: as that realisation dawned.
0: I have to say poverty, as you said, is the big wake-up call for most social revolutions. Once people realise that, hang on, politics is no longer a discussion, it's interfering with my ability to get food and put a roof over our children's head. That's when a lot of people start to see the world in a slightly different way. And uh, I understand what you mean by saying there was no moment. I felt like it was the tide going out and you're part of the jetty sitting there while everyone else is rushing past you going, I think something's happened. I don't think I've changed. I'm still where I was standing, but there's definitely a movement going on in world politics. And uh, I was noticing mm-hmm. that in this world of hysterics and political evangelicals, there is no way back for the, unspo- the outspoken and people like you because we don't have political debates anymore. We have conflicts with these billion dollar corporations and unelected bureaucracies sort of waiting breathlessly behind us on the outcome. Do you feel that if you're brave enough to pick up a sword in the culture wars, that you then can't put it back down without being attacked, that there's no, no way out?
1: Yes, I do feel that. I think it's demonstrably, demonstrably the case. I've crossed the Rubicon. You've crossed the Rubicon.
0: Okay. Uh, many others off the others cliff, off have... the edge, can't come back. Gone.
1: Yeah, and but, but the thing the thing is, it's a that that that, that uh, is a it's a double edged sword. You know, on the one hand, as I say, I over the last number of year, years since all this began, I've uh, people dropped me. You know, so I lost friends at that that closest personal level, people distance themselves from me, and specifically the things that I was saying. But you know, I used to be the president of the of the National Trust for Scotland, and I'm not that anymore. I used to be an ambassador for uh, Combat Stress, which is a veterans, a war veterans charity. I'm not part of that. I'm i dropped by all sorts of groups. The Sunday Times that I used to write for dropped me, so that was painful. It was very uncomfortable. But but I'm not. Unhappy that it happened. I feel as if we've been through some kind of sorting or, or we've been pushed through some kind of sieve and everyone's been caught on a different grade of, of sieve. And I think you and I are probably caught on the same, we were caught at the same place and in the same point for the same reasons. I, and so I find myself now in contact with people whose paths I would never have crossed but for what has happened, but for what has happened. Well, and I don't regret it for a minute.
0: I'd say I would that- rather
1: have my understanding now.
0: I'd say a lot of people, they always thought that you're exceptionally talented. That was indisputable, but now they have an enormous amount of respect that you are prepared to stand up there and take the sacrifice and do what history will see is right, because that's how you'll be judged at the end of the day, not by tomorrow's press, but by the press of the next hundred years. And I think a lot of media would do well to remember that. Um, But I want to talk about a slightly different topic, which is uh, sort of the future of civilization. Human beings are social creatures, and the internet, in particular social media, has thrown the world's conflicting ideas into the same pit. And like a petri dish full of spores and viruses, there's a jungle of thought happening, and they're competing. Are you worried that the totalitarian strain of human culture will win globally, and the Age of Enlightenment? will become a story that we used to tell ourselves. And I ask this because purely based on the numbers, there are fewer libertarians and libertarian nations in the world than there are those raised in worship of the state. So we could end up basically outcompeted.
1: There's no question that we are living through something at the moment. We're living through a phase, but I think it's a phase that will come to an end. And I'll tell you why I think that. Um, yes, it's, it is. There has been a rise of totalitarianism and authoritarian types, petty dictators who, who I think are ultimately motivated by fear of humanity. I think there are people out there who find everyone else a bit unpredictable and frightening, and would, and would, given the opportunity, uh, create a situation where they are able to tell everyone else what to do, in the mistaken belief that it's for everyone's. Uh, you know, general well-being. So we're we're in the grip of totalitarian types at the moment. But the reason that I remain, and I'm always optimistic in the face of this, is that I think what's happening at the moment is an inversion of the natural order. Freedom, the, 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 the desire as sovereign individuals to live free, you know, short of committing murder and mayhem on a whim, but the desire to live free is in the natural order of things. And it's being uh, suppressed at the moment. And it, it, I think the analogy I would use, it's a bit like if you try to hold a ball under the surface of a swimming pool, you can do it, but you have to maintain the energy to keep it under the water because the moment you let go, the ball does what the ball wants to do, which is it bobs immediately back up to the surface. And totalitarians, in order to maintain this inversion of the natural order, it's exhausting. They're holding the ball under the water and maybe not today and maybe not tomorrow, but eventually the totalitarian instinct will become exhausted and freedom, like the ball, will just bob up to the surface. The, the way that you and I want to live, the right to, uh, you know, live our own lives, you know, make a living in the way that we see fit, raise our children in the way that we want to, to interact with one another in the way that we do, to ask questions of authority. These are right and proper. These are in the nat- this is that's the way the universe wants things to be. That's the, that's the way the universe is. And so we will get back to that. So while I, I know that we're in the grip of totalitarianism at the moment, or that totalitarian instinct, It's too exhausting, and it will come to an end.
0: Well, uh, uh, Machiavelli would uh, agree with you because he watched the warring totalitarian states in Italy, and he came to the conclusion that all man wants is to be left alone by the government and to get on with his life, and uh, that is what people do want in the end. But I, I still am a bit worried because if you keep somebody under totalitarian control for too long, They forget what the desire for freedom actually is, and that is the only thing that worries me. But you grew up in a part of the world that is saturated by history and written history at that, where many stories, you know, you can find them in a church corner or buried a few feet under someone's paddock. Uh, But what is it about the ancient human story that set little Neil Oliver down a path of archaeology?
1: I always... I always loved history from I was even when I was too young to know what history was. So I would say that I always liked being told stories because uh, stories are always about people, and that what people have done in the past has always been fascinating to me. Why they did it, where they did it, what the consequences were of it. I was interested in in all of that just for, you know from childhood onwards. History was therefore my, my my best subject at school, I suppose and when it came time to, when i got the chance to go to university i decided that i wanted as far as possible to get back to page 1 of the big book of the human story and archaeology seemed to me the closest i could get to going in at page 1 history is the written word written records but we only learned to write 5000 years ago and the human story is 250 300000 years old so the only way back the only way back to closer to the beginning is via archaeology And it just came from a place of curiosity about why people do the things they do. I also worked, after I was an archeologist, I retrained as a journalist and I worked in newspapers and it came from the same place, which is just nosiness about people. You know, why are they doing that? Why did that happen? Uh, And also-
0: I was gonna say, I, I do envy you because it is one thing to live on a continent like Australia where our rocks are basically the ancient bones of the world But civilization itself is an epic saga and, uh, for example, the streets of Rome have dips at the center of their stairs where you can see them worn down by the passage of human feet, almost like a river. And Mm. it it gets you thinking, although we're extraordinary individual creatures, we also pass through history as nameless droplets. Uh, Do you find that uh, humans change? or are we part of this endless cycle of collapse and rebirth? And if so, is modern society just sitting there on the edge trying to decide whether it's going to become a ruin or rebuild itself into something new?
1: I think we, that's such an enormous philosophical point. Uh, Yes, we are, we are the same, I would say, that we have always been, you know, our species emerged over 250,000 years ago. And I think part of our predicament at the moment is that technology has moved so fast, let's say in the last 100, 200 years, and it's moving faster and faster. You know, the advent of artificial intelligence and the the internet and transhumanism and all of these things that so many of us can barely even begin to contemplate what they might be, far less what they might mean we're still running, 99% of us, 100% of us humans are still running on Hunter software. We're living in a 21st century technological world, but on our hard drive, you know, the operating system, the OS is Hunter. And, and, and it's not really, we're not wired up to cope with change happening as quickly as it is just now. And I think that's what's throwing so many people for a loop. They're not even really giving themselves the slack, that it's the speed of change that is the problem. It's we are the people that we always were, and and yes, it, it is the case that we're all most of us, the vast majority of people, are just droplets. But you know, you're not just, you know, you're not just a drop in the ocean. Each each one of us is, is the ocean in a drop. Each one of us has the potential uh, to to be anything and everything, and. I think there's there's great hope there you you know you talk about the you know do we change during the scottish enlightenment so-called which was in this this this, the second half of the 18th century when it was when it was said that the scottish thinkers were the were were burning brightest of all you voltaire said it's to scotland that we look for our idea of civilization at that time and one of, the, one of the brightest lights was a, was a, a man called Francis Hutcheson, who had the chair of moral philosophy at Glasgow University in the 1760s. And he taught that at the time there was an abiding thought that happiness was random, like manna from heaven, that some people were just lucky enough to be happy and, and most people were just sad. Francis Hutcheson taught on the contrary that happiness was something to be striven for that you had to work, that the way to make yourself happy was to, give, was to work with all your energy to make other people happy, that, make that your objective. And your collateral benefit from that effort would be that you would inadvertently almost make yourself happy. One of Francis Hutchison's students was John Witherspoon, who was eventually invited out to North America to be the second president of what became Princeton University and Witherspoon was also one of the signatories. You see his name on the Declaration of Independence. He, it's to him that we attribute life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the American Declaration of Independence, because he had, he had learned that from his old master, Hutchison. So that idea that became a, a, the plank of, of, this, of the United States of America and their idea of freedom was that it's important to remember that it was, it was to pursue happiness you weren't going to be given it. It wasn't just a gift. You had to pursue happiness. And so that idea from the Scottish Enlightenment rippled out and has become a central tenet of what we think of as freedom in, in the modern era. And so, and, and Francis Hutcheson was only a, a drop in the ocean. He was just one individual. And yet his thinking ha, ha, has reverberated and sustained. And, and any one of us at any given moment is possible of conceptualising a thought that would have the same impact on the generations to come. And... You know, you go to, you know, you know ideally um, um, Middlemarch, George Eliot, you know, ends with, you know, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill for you and me as they might be is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. You know, hidden lives, unvisited tombs. We've all got the potential to make, invisible or not, contributions that change everything.
0: You're and it's you're because ass- I believe
1: in that that I remain optimistic.
0: You're absolutely right. And I do admire your optimism and and, and like you, I love ancient cultures, although I have to be honest, I got distracted by paleontology for a while because, you know, who doesn't love dinosaurs? Uh, But the one thing that uh, struck me when I was walking through ancient Rome was that the largest and most powerful empires on Earth, they can fall and they can end up buried under meters of dirt. And I'm wondering if you think that today's inhabitants of the West have a false sense of security about the permanence of their cities and their civilization?
1: Oh yes, uh, some people say, you know, that, that uh, an entity can grow too big to fail. You know, that's, a, that's something that you'll hear said, but I think the truth of it is that uh, everything eventually, however big it grows, everything big always fails. Look at every empire there's ever been. You go back to Mesopotamia 4,000 and more years ago. Look at the Persian Empire. Look at, look at Greece. Look at Rome. Look at the Austro-Hungarian. Look at the British Empire. Uh, the, the European Union is an empire in all but name, and it's cracking. Eventually, all empires must fall, and it, which, is a, which is a good thing and a bad thing. If we're living through something at the moment, it won't last this totalitarianism won't last because it can't, it's too, you know, one world order or, or a one world government is too big and will fail, however long that takes. There's a, a great television series uh, in the 1970s called Civilization, and it was presented by Kenneth Clark, who was an art historian, and he analysed where civilization comes from and where it goes. And, and he suggested that when it comes to f- the failure of, of all civilizations, it comes not because of pressure from without. It's not the barbarians at the gates that bring it down. It's exhaustion within, and it's a, a loss of confidence within. And I think the loss of confidence comes. You know Hannah Arendt, who wrote about the the banality of evil. You know, after, you know, watching uh, uh, you know Nazi trials in, in the nineteen forties. You know, she said that people become complacent about their present. Be- they take it for granted. You know, there's been some generations now who have lived in the West, who w- who didn't have a hand in building it from the ground up, fighting for freedom, spilling blood, losing loved ones along the way. Th- and so they're tricked into thinking that the kind of lives that we've been able to live here in the West are in, are just, just happen. You know, that you turn up at a bus stop and the bus comes, you go to an auto teller and put your card in and money comes out that that kind of miraculous order just happens. That's a dangerous, a lethally dangerous misconception. And every now and again, enough complacent, take it for granted generations come and go and the whole thing falls down because people are forgetting that freedom and civilization have to be worked for and fought for every minute of every day. Because the minute you stop doing that, the minute you take your feet off the pedals and free wheel, it just grinds to a halt.
0: Well, and stops
1: on, and falls over.
0: On that on that point, I mean, as an archeologist, have you ever fantasized about picking through the remains of somewhere like London and trying to explain to the camera what went wrong with Western civilization? Because I wager our story is going to be rather disappointing. We, we lack the drama of the uh, Easter Island head arms race, if, uh, if that's a good comparison.
1: There's a, I think, uh, I'm surprised almost, I am surprised to hear myself using language like the following, which is to say, I think there is a degeneracy in the West. There's been a decadence in the West, born of plenty, born of too many people taking it for granted that that we can have all the food, all the white goods, all the tech, everything our hearts desire, you know, has bred, that's decadent. A dangerous decadence, and and the successor to decadence is a degeneracy that's 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 creeping in as well, in the West, which which I never expected to, to hear myself say, but I think, I think there is a, a a dangerous decadence and degeneracy that has crept in that will that is part of and is symptomatic of our our collapse. You know, so when you say picking through the the debris of of a London in a thousand years' time and trying to understand what happened. It's what always happens. It's what brought down, it's why Rome fell. It's why all of the empires fall. It's exhaustion from within. Eventually people think, I just wish something would happen. There's a, there's a famous poem by, by the contemporary Greek poet C.P. Cavafe about barbarians at the, in, the, in the hinterland of a, of a great city. And the people within the city, they know the barbarians are out there. And they think that the day is going to come when they're just going to break down the gates and come in. And actually within the city, the people are eventually hoping that will happen because they're so bored that anything new sounds like a good idea. And then the day comes and they're waking up and the barbarians have gone. They've just, they've just left and gone elsewhere without ever coming to the city. And the people within the city are disappointed because at least the arrival of the barbarians would have been something new.
0: That's basically Generation and I think that's Netflix. that's where we are now. <laughs> Yeah, it's Generation Netflix wishing that they could live in a post-apocalyptic world because they're so bored. Um, as uh, Will, Yes, I
1: think, I think that's there.
0: Yeah, well, as Will and Ariel Durant said, human history is a brief spot in space and its first lesson is modesty, being that we can just be destroyed at any moment. Uh, but you said something very interesting uh, earlier on about your transition from journalism away from your famous role walking along the coastlines of the world, And you said that ultimately both journalism and archeology span are trying to understand the people and why they did something. You know, we're literally picking through debris. Is that still true of journalism or has journalism become something else today?
1: Well, I think that that's an answer in two parts. Most of the people who have the microphone at the moment, so to speak, or, or who are writing in the, the long-established uh, newspaper titles are not working as journalists at the moment. That I think that's an undeniable fact. Up here in the UK, the, the, the journalists have been—you know—the ta- the newspapers were being given money, fortunes by government, by Bill Gates and others, to to host a version of the narrative that was in the interest of the government and in you know transnational corporations, and so they have. They have absolutely betrayed the, the sacred oath of journalists, if, if, there, if there ever was such a thing. Uh, so we're not seeing journalism practised at the moment. But the second part of the answer is journalists true to the faith are still out there. It, it's just that there's been a, you know, the, the seesaw has swung and, the you know, and the, those journalists that, that want to investigate, want to tell the truth, are in a, A marginalised minority at the moment, but as is evidenced by you and 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 other journalists around the place, censored or silenced or finding it hard to get their message out or not, that instinct is is there. It's a natural instinct for many people to burrow down into the debris in search of the truth.
0: I tell you what, it will
1: it will come back.
0: It's not easy because there are very few publications and broadcasters, as you well know. Who are prepared to publish the truth? I mean, we have the Australian Spectator here, which has always held the line. We've got GB News of what you're doing, and we've got ADH TV here. But it's, uh, it's a lot of forest out there, and not a lot of real trees going on. Um, there's another quote that I think you like, might like from Will and Ariel Durant regarding freedom that I believe may be appropriate for the time that we live in. They said that nature smiles at the union of freedom and equality in our utopias for freedom and equality are sworn and everlasting enemies. And when one prevails, the other dies. Would you agree?
1: Tell me that again. Let me listen to that for the second time.
0: Yeah, no problem. There, it's a wonderful book about the lessons of history for those who want to go and look it up. Yes. Um, it says, nature smiles at the union of freedom and equality in our utopias. For freedom and equality, are sworn and everlasting enemies. And when one prevails, the other dies.
1: Yes, I, I, I get that. I, I, absolutely. You've got to be careful with any powerful medicine, you know, freedom, equality. You, you, you have to be, uh, they always say, you know, that, um, you know, fire is a good servant, but a bad master. You, you've got to be ever vigilant and when you if you're listening to people that you know that that, that take up something like freedom and, and and anything goes, and that and that anything might be done in the pursuit of someone's idea of equality, all of these all of these grand notions, all of the makings of grand narratives are potentially dangerous. You know what what you need is balance. Back to that idea of of the natural order of things. It, 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 you mustn't let anything overbalance and get over mighty and too powerful. You need to have competing and contrasting uh, ideas vying for uh, position and trying to get their voice at all times. I, I would say, you know, so you can't, you know, one person's freedom might involve other people's captivity. And so, and so that that person's freedom at the cost of all that captivity is is not desirable.
0: That's why you're such but a you wonderful to, presenter, you to, because you're not an extremist. You well, understand you tell- the balance that there is in humanity.
1: Yeah, you've got to... You know, we're getting to this point with censorship and, and the threat to freedom of speech, where we're almost at the point of being handed laminated cards so that true. will tell us the all and the only things that we're allowed to say and that we won't be allowed to deviate from those compelled, that compelled speech. You know, you won't just be, that won't just be what you're allowed to say, it'll be what you're also compelled to say at some point every day. In a a binary choice between that reality and somewhere where people were allowed to say absolutely anything, however offensive, however inflammatory, offensive to me, (coughs) excuse me, however, I would have to come down on the side of anything goes if it was a straight binary choice between that kind of censorship and compelled speech and absolute freedom. But what I would far rather have is just an, an open arena, the, the, the civic square, where people can come forward and, say, and speak, give their opinions, and where their opinions are, are to be challenged, then let them be openly challenged and without rancour, and without violence and without the attempt to whack-a-mole, just shut people down, let's hear what anyone and everyone has to say. And when something novel comes up, like a new new virus, for example, or the emergence of of a new gene therapy, let's absolutely in those circumstances, make it the case that anyone and everyone can ask questions and give an opinion. Because at any given moment, the absolute best idea could come from the most unexpected source. And, and to instigate a set of circumstances where, where that voice is never heard is lethally dangerous. You, you, as well as, not, as, as, well as I, I mean, extremist and dangerous ideas openly aired will be debated and, and marginalized naturally by debate. But at the same time, the next brilliant idea you mustn't preclude its coming forward.
0: Well, I've there, only, there
1: has to be balance.
0: I, I've only got a couple more questions because you've been so generous with your time. But uh, it's often said that history is the subject of geology and people and geography as well. And people have always had their societies shaped by the restless movements of the earth. In recent history, the sea level has risen 100 metres and ice sheets have expanded and retracted completely rewriting the coastlines of the world. Do you find it strange that humans who have proven their ability to thrive in drastic climatic changes, that we're somehow trapped in this ideology of eco-fascism that preaches a sort of religious end times as an excuse to raise taxes? It seems bizarre that anyone would believe this given the wealth of historical knowledge that people like you have about human civilization.
1: Well, yes, the, the, it's undeniably true that the story of planet Earth is, is of constant change and of flux on unimaginable scales. You know, the, the, the very continents of the planet have been bulldozed away and replaced with something new, not just once, but multiple times. And yes, you know, for, for three million years, there's been glaciation on our, our planet. And, and at times we've been a snowball, you know, hurtling through infinity, you know, temperatures falling and then, and then the temperatures come back. And you know, we are living through an interglacial at the moment. You know, we are living in, within a pattern of long, bitter cold lasting for tens, even hundreds of thousands of years, broken briefly by warm periods, you know where where life reasserts itself, and we're in another interglacial. And yes, it is perpetually uh, depressing and discouraging that we keep we keep collectively seeming to forget that. And so you know we're we're imagining you know we're imagining that this period of time that we're living through is how it's always been and therefore how it always ought to be in the future. But the only thing you can rely on geologically speaking, that's that's my. my, my Hello, Every, sorry.
0: Everyone Greasing loves your dog. Everyone that he's the real star of the uh, Twitter account.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but but the, the the great the great story of, of, of the planet is that we have it has been through nothing but unimaginable change. And yet our species has always been able to adapt. That's what we've always done. That's really what we're here to do which is to adapt, and, we will, and, and so we will continue to do. Uh,
0: better that we start throwing virgins of volcanoes, because that seems to be the best way that we can solve our, uh, our climate crisis at the moment. That's what we've gone down, the uh, most intelligent, progressive yes. society in all of history. But
1: For what it's worth, I will say I believe that what we're being bombarded with at the moment is climate hoax. I mean, I, I, and I don't, you know, debate me on that point. Anyone's free to debate me if they want. The climate is changing. The climate has always changed. As long as there's been a climate on planet Earth, it has been changeable, and for sure it's changing. But what we're being told at the moment, and the the way in which we're being manipulated in terms of Agenda 2030 and net zero and all of the rest of it, is is a, is the stuff of a hoax. And the and the sooner people waken up to the fact that they are just being manipulated for the same old reasons about about profit and control, well, the sooner people waken up to that, the better.
0: Well, the one thing you can't do is stop the planet changing itself via taxing the working class and the middle class. That's definitely not going to help anybody. Although I would rather they spend the trillions of dollars on getting pollution under control. That to me would be a better use of everyone's time and money. But uh, that's just me. You as well?
1: <laughs> I, can't, I can't take seriously really a population that is, as individuals, we are such mess makers You know, I I walk about my my environment here in Stirling in Scotland, you know, I walk my dogs and I see the rubbish, I see the mess, you know, that that we foul our own nest all the time. It's everywhere. And yet at the same time, you have to listen to people pontificating about saving the planet. But as individuals, we're demonstrably incapable of looking over, looking after our own backyards, you know, clearing up our own personal mess. On what planet, <laughs> literally, can we can we listen to people who who say they can save the planet, but they can't put rubbish in a bin?
0: Do you know what I think it is? You know,
1: saving the planet starts with the individual, and we're not seeing it yet.
0: It's much easier. For a generation who hasn't done a lot of hard work or a lot of manual labour, let's put it that way. It's so much easier for them to say let's tax people and let's go net zero than to go outside and to start picking up rubbish and to plant some trees and to make a difference. That's hard work and they don't want that kind of environmentalism, they want the really easy social media style save the planet environmentalism. But I want to finish on a somewhat fun question because I've always wondered this. Do you ever worry, as an archaeologist, trying to understand some fabulous ruin, that there is no greater story behind its creation? Take Stonehenge. Would you be disappointed if you went back in time and discovered that a group of blokes got woefully drunk and decided to wreck some stone circle for shits and giggles? Would that disappoint you or would it perfectly (laughs) capture humanity?
1: I would go with the latter. Uh, I, I don't think that is what happened, but if that was demonstrated to me to be the case, then I, I couldn't. I could find space to enjoy that too. I've never. I've never um, invested. I, I don't have. Um, I don't believe any explanation of anything to the point where I could never surrender that interpretation in favour of of a more conclusive interpretation that came along. For me, that's part of the great excitement and fun of it. That possibility that at any moment, the revelation might come, that the way we thought that, that what we thought explained that, that feature there is actually entirely different. I love that. So if the possibility, if someone was actually able to demonstrate, although I think it's unlikely that Stonehenge was the work of aliens from Venus, I would just allow my mind to be blown by that. That, that, my understanding of before being erased and replaced by something else doesn't take away my sense of myself. You know, I don't invest the person I am in any of the ideas that I hold at the moment. For me, everything is potentially up for change, up for reinterpretation at all times. Well, that's I... why it's fun. That's why con- concepts like the science, that's the most stagnant uh, rock pool imaginable. The settled science, that's death. That's intellectual death. The whole point about a pursuit like science is the necessity for skeptical interrogation of what everybody says at all times. Any- that's, where the, that's where the joy is.
0: Anyone who says trust the science is not a scientist and has no love for science as a philosophy or as a pursuit because certainly science has never asked it, anybody to trust it. Science wants you to ask questions about the world and see what you can find out. But uh, I'd like to thank you so much, Neil Oliver, for coming and for your dog who has gone for a walk and left us. But it was an absolute pleasure to have you on our show. Where can our viewers find you?
1: Oh, well, Alexander, well, first of all, I have to say, you know, the, the fact that Gracie made her, her input there, I am, I am, there's no there's no artifice, to be quite honest about me. You know, that what you what you see is my real life happening in real time at any given moment. You know, there's no, <laughs> there's no fakery going on here. Um, where, where can people find me? Well, I have, uh, I write books. That, uh, there's various titles out there that you can find in all good bookshops. Um, I have a couple of podcasts, my love letter to the British Isles and uh, my love letter to the world. I've got a YouTube channel. I'm there on Instagram. You know, I'm out there on on all of the platforms and you can see me, well, every Saturday night in the UK from 6pm till 8pm, I host a a current affairs and chat show called Neil Oliver Live on GB News and uh, clips of that go out on YouTube and you can watch it on catch up and all the rest of it. But Alexandra, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for making time for me. And we can do this again anytime you feel inclined.
0: Thank you so much for taking some time to talk philosophy and history. It's been an absolute joy. And that's all from us here. I'm Alexandra Marshall. Catch you next week.